Stand by for action. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Hi, my name is Carolyn Bailey and it's my pleasure to welcome you to AR Zone podcast number 31. Joining me today will be fellow AR Zone admins, Barbara DeGrand, Tim Geyer, Ronnie Lee, and Roger Yates. Hi, everyone. Hi, Carolyn. Hello, Carolyn. Hi, Carolyn. Also joining us today is Harold Brown, the founder of FarmKind, a place where anyone can learn about issues concerning our food, how it's produced, and the many complex connections it has to our world and our lives. Harold was born and raised on a cattle farm and spent more than half of his life involved in agriculture, three years of which were in the dairy industry. Now he works as an advocate for sustainable, independent family farms, environmental and social justice, and peace through nonviolence. Harold is featured in the Tribe of Heart documentary, Peaceable Kingdom, The Journey Home, in which he speaks of his transformation from a farmer of other animals to a vegan and an advocate for other animals. Welcome to AR Zone, Harold. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. In your AR Zone live chat of 2010, Harold, you spoke about envisioning a world in which all other animals would live on their own terms. Could you please tell our listeners what you believe that world would look like and also your opinion on biologically altering predator species, either to prevent them from harming so-called prey species or to eliminate predators altogether? Okay, well, I'll start with the uh, idea of what it would look like to have a world where uh, all non-humans are able to live on their own terms. And I like that term, living on their own terms, because that is precisely what it means to me, is that we have, being both everyone who's participating today, we're all, oh, how should I put it, indoctrinated in or part of a the Western herding culture. And the Western herding culture has this very, very deeply ingrained and deep psychology that nature is basically chaos and that our responsibility as the dominant species is to manage that chaos and bring order to it. And what I see is this idea, and I see it happening all the time lately, right here in our own backyard with a couple of different issues, but it's getting people to think, I guess, outside the box to say, what is our role? What are our responsibilities? What are our obligations? Well, sometimes those obligations and responsibilities are the opposite of what we traditionally think they are. And that which means keep your damn hands off, you know, get, get just get out of the mix, leave it alone. While on one hand, most people recognize nature has this beautiful ability of finding its own homeostasis and balance. We always have this really bizarre way of getting ourselves entangled in those operations and those in that balance and screwing things up. And in the long term, 
it never works out well. It hasn't in, the, in our area of the United States, and people are waking up to that. I mean, some of these are 50-year programs of dealing with predators and uh, prey situations that just have worked out horribly. And now they're saying, well, what do we do? And uh, I think this ties into what you're talking about with uh, biologically altering uh, certain species in nature, uh, whether it's through, you know, the vaccination for sterilization or whatever else they may be looking at, is that there's this double think that goes on with, uh, at one hand, a lot of, like all of my neighbors are hunters. And for them, they'll say, well, you know, on one hand, if you let the deer population find its own balance, you're going to have a lot of deer starving and dying in the wintertime. And, uh, yeah, indeed you will. But that's part of the balance. They tend to find, that's how they find their, their homeostasis, their balance, is that if they do overpopulate their food supply, then there will be a die-off. But, again, this is part of the human shortcoming of living outside the natural order. In other words, humans just cannot wrap their heads around the idea, and it's by way of our medicine and all the other interventions that we do, that we're not able to think of ourselves as, you know, allowing our species to have die-offs, to allow our species to find its own natural balance. And we intercede at every turn to make sure that, that we survive. And it's always, it's generally through external means that we make sure that we survive in situations or in diseases that we otherwise would not. And we can see where we're at now. We've just passed the 7 billion point as far as the population of the planet, and it's still growing. So it's something we need to look at, but it's, it's one of the ways that we need to start thinking a little bit differently and encouraging other people to kind of shed their fear of not of being part of the natural order, you know, living within that balance, but also recognizing that non-human animals already do and that we allow them sometimes to do it and sometimes we don't. And when we don't, it's usually because of something we want from them. In other words, we want more ducks to shoot, we want more deer to shoot, whatever that might be. But it always comes down to we want more targets to shoot at. On the other hand, you know, they also recognize that there's also, you know, deer have a way of, at least around here, white-tailed deer. If they run into a season where the does are pregnant and they can't, literally cannot find enough feed to keep them alive, if they're within the first trimester, they can reabsorb the fetus in their body. So it's it's an amazing chemistry. It's an amazing balance, but we just you know we we turn a blind eye to that. Mm. I agree with you. I think sometimes humans just don't get it. On the, on that point of reabsorbing the fetus, I I heard that um, that wolves do that as well in terms of if there's you know not enough food in their area, they they will also do that. Is, is that right? Do you know? I I've heard that too. I don't know for a fact, but I have heard of that. I've heard of it actually in several species that will do that, but uh, I'm not an expert on that. No, it's just that, you know, going back to that point about the, the deers overpopulating, that um, often, I mean, that always sounds quite bad, starvation and everything, but in, in actual fact, it probably wouldn't be quite as dramatic and drastic as the hunters would like us to imagine because of 
these kind of self-regulating features of, of nature which we tend to either ignore or don't even know about oh sure that you're familiar with David Pierce's work on issues that have to do with genetically modifying humans and non-humans. He, he, he believes that the human race will have what he calls godlike powers within the next hundred years or so, and he thinks that with those powers we'll be able to eliminate some of these sorts of issues that we have now with respect to how other animals live in the wild as predators and prey. Can you talk about that for a minute? Well, I suppose that that's possible. Uh, I'd hate to see that happen, but, you know, why not? That just fits into the whole agricultural mindset and psychology of, of um, managing, controlling the chaos, uh, what they perceive as chaos. I, I don't know. I was going to say to what Roger said before, the lack of the understanding that people have of how this balance works. There's a small town just south of where we live that a bunch of us are taking up a cause to stop a hunting and fishing club from doing their first annual crow shoot. And it's totally a recreational shoot because no one eats crows, thus the saying, eating crow, no sane person would. But it's totally a event to see who can shoot the most crows in a day. And they say, well, there's too many of them and so on and so forth. Well, there isn't too many of them. But the point is, is that when you do have this natural die-off of other species, crows, that's their main function, is there's a cleanup crew. In our area, it's basically coyotes and crows that clean up the carrion. And here they want to take, you know, uh, make sport out of shooting one of the main uh, cleaner-uppers of our environment. And we've even got a professor from Cornell who's an expert in crows who's just decrying this and saying it's a public health concern, it's insane. But the most astonishing thing that this man has been saying is, is that killing for pleasure is is abhorrent. And he's not a vegetarian. So <laughs> it's interesting how people, you know, when they get when they get in the trenches dealing with these issues, how their thinking kind of evolves. And uh, for this man, he's, he has evolved to the point where he's saying that, you know, killing for sport, killing crows for sport, and just, just to see who can shoot the most is, not, is actually not abomination. It's interesting how people think that uh, overpopulation always means an animal species. They never seem to think it means the human overpopulation is a problem. Well, of course. The default always falls to in human interests. You know, we, we, we're the top of the heap and uh, we make damn sure we're going to stay there no matter what it costs anyone else. Harold, moving on to a slightly different subject, what was it that caused you to become vegan and to end up being an advocate for animal protection? Well, that was a, an interesting part of my of my journey and I actually it wasn't until a few years ago that I was able to really understand that part of my journey because I went 
to an entirely plant-based diet in 1991, and I did it for health reasons because I had had a heart attack when I was 18 but didn't know that's what had happened to me. And when, after watching my father die from uh, heart disease and other members of my family, I basically educated myself to find out what I needed to do to prevent that from happening to me, or at least to prolong the onset of it. I was from 91 until I'd say 96 or 97, I was a person that was eating a plant-based diet, but yet called myself a vegan, only because the word had been mashed up with so many other definitions that there wasn't really a clear definition, at least in my head, of what that meant. But it wasn't until I'd had an interaction that people learn about in the documentary of uh, my interaction with a steer that I finally had this um, joining of the head and heart. And I understood at an emotional level, but it went deeper than that. I think it was a spiritual level, not that I'm a uh, uh, really what you would call a spiritual person, but it was something much deeper that connected. And I realized that veganism is a uh, ethical and moral way of showing up. And uh, when I had that realization, well, you know, good grief, you know, it's this causes my life to take another direction. And in that moment, actually, when I had this moment with this steer named Snickers, is that it was like this cascading of realization. It was almost like having an end-of-life experience where your life flashes before your eyes. And in that moment, I realized what my coping mechanism was for all of my life and how to deal with situations and people and uh, animals that allowed me to commit violence, to be indifferent, to be apathetic to their circumstances. And uh, it came down to one phrase, and that phrase was, I don't care. And I realized that every time I, I either verbalized that or said that in my head, it disconnected me from that other emotionally and physically and psychologically, and, and then I'll say spiritually too, it allowed me to do anything. And... Uh, and the more I did it, the easier it got. That was when, that was a real oh, eye-opener for me. And so that, and I realized at that moment that, well, I can no longer say that. I can never employ I don't care in my life. And what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is to say I care. So in all situations, with all people, with all others, I'll put it that way, I say I care. And that makes you show up in the world in an entirely different way. But I think that's what true veganism really means. It means I care, and, and you care about everything. You care about the planet. You care about ecosystems. You care about larger things. But it also is caring about yourself enough to learn and to grow and to be more and to be better than you were yesterday. And I think that is one of the crucial parts of veganism and why I think it's really this all-encompassing way of showing up that is really probably the bellwether for, you know, basically the salvation of this planet. But that was really 
part of my journey, uh, probably the turning point of my journey was that idea where I thought I was a vegan, but then I realized I'm just a person on a plant-based diet, that I had no ethical framework to my life to speak of. And then by way of this interaction with a steer, I did. And it's and I'm still working on it. I mean, it's been a bunch of years now since that's happened. And I'm still learning. I'm, st- I'm still figuring stuff out. And, uh, you know, hopefully, I don't think, I hope nobody out there is figured they got a lockdown on all the answers because that's a dangerous place to be, I think. Um, that, that's where I was back in the day when I lived that other life. I thought I had it all figured out. And I'll tell you, it, it really shakes your world when you figure, realize that you don't. But, you know, being, me being the typical human, is that it's usually a crisis. It took a major crisis for me to realize and deconstruct that past indoctrination. Harold, do you think that it's likely that lots and lots of people are going to be able to see what you've seen and come to the conclusions you've reached? I mean, the the way that you're talking about the way that we have to change how we view nature and and what we think about that aspect of the world and what you just spoke about in your own transformation... Are you hopeful that that's going to happen for large numbers of people? Yes, I do. Uh, I see it happen all the time. In the community that I work in, in Ithaca, New York, I see it happen, if not daily, weekly. And that's really probably the most heartbreaking part of this kind of work, of, of trying to advocate for a better world, is that you've got to watch people go through hell and watch it. But you have to be present for that and observe it and be there for them with an outstretched hand to help them through it and out of it. They need, generally speaking, you know, that's the way most people, you know, come by this way of thinking or at least burn away enough of their own ego that they're able to say, I need other answers. I need another perspective. And I think that's what our work is. I see that as my work is being that other perspective. But in the meantime, I have to watch all these people that are around me that are in in not good places and having a very hard time with their lives and just kind of being still and being quiet until a moment is right. And then they ask and then I try to be. And if I don't, if I'm, if I'm not the right person, then I try to hook them up with people that are better equipped than I am to help them through that, you know, depending on what their needs are, whether it's uh, more of a, you know, a physical uh, crisis they're going through or if it's an emotional crisis. I just see myself as kind of a person to facilitate that direction. Um, occasionally, I do run into people who have been in the livestock industry and, you know, I help them. It's interesting because the discussions and the work, the, what I listen come from them is less loaded with baggage than what I hear from people who are not in that world. And they tend to be, I think it's just their perspective is, is they, they firsthand, they know what they've done and where, what, they, what they're doing. And when they see it not working for them in, one, in whatever way, they know that a change needs to be made, whereas people who, say, live in an urban area, they have all these ex- other external pressures, which rural people don't. 
and those external pressures tend to complicate things because it's like this kind of this cacophony of noise coming at you all the time of do this, do that, consume this, be this, do that, you know, that they just, it's almost a state of confusion that they live in. When you live out in the sticks like I do, <laughs> there's not a lot of distractions, so people don't <laughs> and, then, and again, again, you know, it's kind of my crutch now is my cacophony is Facebook, damn it. interesting what you just said there about the urban rural divide there in the sense that i'm in ireland and we had a situation where the new law came in where the old battery cages had to be transformed into the enriched so-called enriched cages and um, quite a lot of the irish farmers had not complied with the law and so consequently there was going to be a so-called coal and someone from the egg industry or the poultry industry contacted someone from the animal rights movement in order to try and save them. And turned out that he was being stonewalled by the, the farmers that he's supposed to represent. And he was getting a lot of help from the animal rights side of things. Hmm. Um, and so in the, in the end, what happened was the hens were killed in advance of the agreement because the animal rights people were going to kind of, as it were, rescue them and uh, take them to sanctuaries, etc. They were killed because the farmers didn't want people to see the state of them. And this made the representative, the guy who contacted the animal rights people, very angry. And so he ended up um, sending a donation <laughs> to the animal rights group. Uh, and the group wrote back and said, you do realize that we're trying to close your industry down, don't you? And he said, yeah, well, the thing is, I'm not really very comfortable about being in, in my industry. It's just that it's like a family tradition. And I'm, I'm kind of doing it be, because of that. You know, and he, he said that um, he was once traumatized by taking some other animals to a slaughterhouse and seeing the process. And so consequently, he made sure he, he never did that again. But he's still in the supply chain because of the family thing. You know, these, these things are quite complicated, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, I know many farmers that, in one way or another, have boundaries to what they can handle emotionally. I know of one dairy farmer in this area who has never been to an auction, and he's never he's never killed an animal himself. When he would have... Uh, a cow go down on the uh, farm, he would call the rendering company to come out and pick her up. And of course, she's still alive, so the rendering truck comes out and they back up to where she's at and they have a winch to pull her in. But he takes a small gauge shotgun, shoots her in the head, and then winches her in. But when that would happen, what he would do is jump on his ATV and take off to the furthest corner of his farm so he couldn't even hear the gunshot because he just could not deal with this idea that he recognized her as being this this being who helped him make money. And he had that sort of connection. And then he just couldn't be present for that side of the business. And it goes even worse than that. A couple of years ago, there was a dairy farm near here, a smaller one. It was a guy who only had 51 head of dairy cows I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize about the dairy industry is that if you don't have a lot of employees or none at all, 
the cows basically run your life. They need to be milked two to three times a day. You have your chores, you got your feedings, the cleaning, the mucking of barns, and so on. And it um, it rules your life. And many farmers get to the point where they they get to where they detest their cows. They actually get to the point where they resent them because they're this bunch of cows, just they feel are so needy and just, you know, suck up all their time and energy. Also here in the United States, the, the dairy industry for the last few years, the uh, market for uh, fluid milk has been really down. And he was not making much money and uh, so on. So one day, his neighbor didn't hear the pump for the milking machine go off in the morning, and which was around 4.30 in the morning, and didn't hear anything. And then it was awfully quiet and dark over there. So he went over there, and the barn door was shut, but there was a note tacked to the door. And it says, don't come in, call 911. So he called emergency, state police came out and so on. And they went in, and he had gone in uh, early in the morning. He had shot and killed all his cows, and he killed himself. And, uh, I, you know, the psychological costs of doing this business, of exploiting other animals, there is, there's a certain level of exploitation that goes on personally. And eventually, you know, their soul just can't take it anymore. You know, and they just put an end to it. It doesn't happen very often, but, you know, it, it just illustrates what you were talking about, that, that there's, there's costs to this. I know... One organization here in the United States was talking about how they basically, on one hand, they consider themselves part of what's now called the animal protection movement, which is just astonishes me that they went from animal rights to animal welfare. Now it's all called animal protection. Well, this one organization held this one farmer in Wisconsin up as being a uh, the model farmer for what they call the conscientious consumer. And he is this pig farmer who was so connected to his pigs that he would go to the slaughterhouse with them and he would scratch their heads and sing to them while they were stunned and bled. And he would cry and cry and cry. And, you know, it just, it took so much out of him to do this. But as you said, it was, it was a way, it's what he did by tradition to make money and to make a living. And he knew no other way to do it you know, regardless of the emotional cost of it. And here, his pain and his, and where somebody needed to reach out to him to say, you know, let's find another way for you to make a living. He's being held up by an organization as, you know, this is a humane farmer, you know, and uh, it, it's just astonishing for me to see that. And, uh, you know, and how these things get twisted around. Because these are people, a lot of farmers, by and large, that raise livestock, whether they say it or not, are very, pretty much tortured individuals. Yeah, it's um, well, I mean, it's it's a complicated issue. I mean, obviously, um, animal advocates are, are liable to be very cynical about that and just maybe dismiss people as as abusers. But obviously, there are human beings as well. Going back to that thing about resentful of the other animals, there is a a scene that affected me. In the Animals film, which is a 1982 film, uh, which is kind of my generation's version of Earth, Earthlings, and there, there was an interview with a veal farmer in inverted commas, and he was saying, "Well, it's a good industry, you know, we can make this and we can make that and everything." But the thing I don't like is the confinement. 
and he goes because we've got to be here all the time and we've got to feed them through and and so you think when he says confinement you you hear the bit he, does, he doesn't like about his trade is the confinement of the calves but he's actually talking about his own confinement on the farm and then the the other thread you know in in terms of the the fact that there's lots of farmers who seem not to kind of fully internalize the process which they're involved in for example in the in the 2001 foot and mouth incident in britain which was a big deal it was on it on the national news day after day for weeks you had um, farmers crying uh, you know they they were really kind of weeping you know because they were seeing their animals in inverted commas being slaughtered or killed or culled, whatever they would call that, call it. And you would think, yeah, right, you know, what 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 do you think normally happens to them, mate, type of thing. But I, I think that um, illustrates the fact that they don't usually see that part of it. And consequently, there's, there's a complicated psychology there, but they are part and parcel of this very exploitative industry, but they can, they can kind of extract themselves from it to some degree in order to to do it while still feeling rather uncomfortable as well. I just came to a realization here that that is pretty much the way people think by and large in the Buddhist community. Uh, we have a, a Tibetan monastery near here and um, they all eat meat and eat dairy products. And while they know better, they still do it. But it's because and they, there's two default excuses they use. Number one is, well, we didn't do the killing. As long as they can, you know, project that onto somebody else and they don't have to take responsibility for it. And even if they do take responsibility for it, then the last default in Buddhism is, is that, you know, everything is energy and nothing is truly destroyed. It's just in transformation. So, but in any case, it's, it's kind of the same psychology that some Buddhists use that, insist on using animal products it's just that as long as i'm not party to that part of it then it spares me the the anguish or the sadness or whatever that i i probably know that i would i would experience and just leave it at that harold you say you're an advocate for peace through non-violence do you believe there are any circumstances where the use of physical force is morally justifiable. Oh, golly. That is such a tough one for me. Intellectually, and, you know, sitting here in my nice warm little house and a blowing blizzard outside, I can say, no, there isn't a circumstance I would do that. And that I would resort to physical violence. On the other hand, I can construct things in my head where I would say that I would resort to physical violence to protect our two rescue dogs or my wife. But what would that look like? That's the other question I ask myself. Would it be in as much as that in a situation that I would take the bullet for them? And of course I would. But on the other hand, See, this is such a hard thing for me. I, I, I am a registered pacifist through the Peace Abbey here in the United States. And I do my best at all times to 
study, understand, and adhere to pacifism and nonviolence. But I all too well understand the violence, and because uh, I was part of that, you know, violence against you know non-humans, violence against humans. I mean, that was a form of entertainment when I was a kid, getting in fights, getting in bar fights, bar brawls, and so on. Those were, you know, not healthy things. You know, in retrospect, a long time ago, I thought, well, those are kind of cool things because that's what defines you as a man. Society at large, I would say, would say that you're a strong person, that you're not a person to be messed around with, you're a person of principle, that you're a person that doesn't back down from a fight and uh, so on. But I've learned that it goes way beyond that. And uh, that to injure another is, I've never, I cannot think of a situation in my life, even when I thought it was justified, that when I hurt someone else, that it ever fixed anything. It always made it worse. And I don't, so yeah, it's a play, this is one of the most tumultuous parts of my life, is, you know, would I resort to it? It's, golly, you know, I would say no, that I wouldn't. But then again, there's the Buddhist idea of redirecting the energy. It's kind of like what Aikido or Tai Chi uh, involves. And it, it's um, taking that aggression, that violence is directed toward you and re, you know, harmlessly redirecting it so that it doesn't have an impact you or on those that you care about. And eventually the other person becomes frustrated because they can't hurt you and they give up and it puts them in a different place because they realize that their physical violence is for naught. So, you know, this is, this is an ongoing process for me. And it's, uh, but I would say just generally speaking, when I look at history, I can see the arguments on both sides. But the thing is, is as a, as a species, as humans as a species, the violence, the way we define violence and the way we have practiced violence, I can't see that it's ever really solved any problems. Some people will say, well, what about the Second World War and people like Hitler and uh, you know, Stalin, Mao, and so on. Those are you know, cases, maybe it was. But on the other hand, I think what I've come to realize now is that you can forestall nearly all of those problems if you stay engaged with all communities and before you ever open your mouth and talk to these people and interact with them, say the golden rule to yourself 10 times. If all of our statesmen and our politicians uh, in their interactions with other countries, uh, the representative of other countries, if that was the foundation for their diplomacy and for all of their negotiations and however else they want to look at the world and even looking at the planet itself, looking at nature itself and asking that question, you know, would I want this done unto me? Someone else might consider to be um, a vital resource extracted from my person for the benefit of that other person. And no, of course we wouldn't.
So I, I try to, that's kind of my uh, parameter for dealing with this, is uh, following the golden rule and doing the best I can to make sure that in my interactions with other people that I talk, I ask myself that question first before I open my mouth and say something that's going to escalate a problem. I wanted to ask you about your opinion on undercover video footage and specifically the claims that are made about them. There was a small slaughterhouse closed here in Australia recently based on footage of pigs being abused and the claims from most advocates here was that this was an enormous victory. Obviously no one was actually saved because of this and the claims were that this was a victory because we simply can't stop humans eating other animals, so we should be happy with small, insignificant changes which make no difference at all to the lives of those other individuals who continue to be commodified and slaughtered for human gratification. In comparison, there was also an undercover video taken by Animal Equality in London that was released during the last few days, and the claims making following this was completely different and made it quite clear that regardless of whether a farm is labelled as quality assured, there still exists pain, suffering and exploitation on a huge scale. And the only way that this will ever end is to become vegan. Could you please give your opinion on undercover slaughterhouse footage and more specifically on the claims that are made about these videos and the consequences of those claims? Well. These videos are, are pretty common here in the United States. There are several organizations that are constantly doing undercover investigations on production facilities and slaughterhouses. It astounds me to think that you do an undercover video at a slaughterhouse and you expect people to be outraged. I mean, Craig, when I was a kid, and, and probably more so with my parents' generation, that was part of going to school was getting a uh, was field trips to slaughterhouses. They don't do it anymore because we've hit the tipping point where more people live in urban areas than rural areas. But back then, nobody thought anything of it. So people did get to see how the sausage was made, and nobody was you know repulsed by it. And these days, people you know are repulsed by it. But I'm of two minds when it comes to undercover videos well let me let me start with by saying this is that to me a lot of what videos are they're they're telling a truth but if you're a student of human nature how does that truth play to a world where as a planet now a human population more people live in urban areas and rural areas now so we have, here in the United States, we have a full generation and a half that are totally disconnected from agriculture. And how does that play to them? Well, it's kind of a shock and awe to me. It's it, it just something that people don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. I kind of put videos, um, whether they're documentaries or undercover videos, into two categories, the transformational videos and then there's the shock and awe videos. But in either case, what is the message being given? And by and large, what I see is the message. And it's gotten to the point where I can't watch most of these anymore. They, they just shut me down to the point where 
I become non-functional for a day or two. I think the operational from a psychological and human nature point of view is that the shock and awe relies on the device of shame and guilt to get people to act differently, to change a behavior, because that's what they're aiming for, is to change people's behavior by witnessing this. But to me, shame and guilt, they lead to coercion sometimes, but in any case, shame and guilt, I don't see that as ever being an effective way of changing hearts and minds. And a parallel I would make is uh, a lot of, throughout history, is organized religion, which use, used and uses shame and guilt as a way of getting people to fall in line. For some people, that works, and that's good enough, but their thinking doesn't move beyond that. They see something as just something they don't want to be part of, and they don't move beyond that. And they don't make the connection to really deeply understand the injustice of what they've just witnessed. Again, how these things are used by organizations upon the public focuses, in my opinion, on the abuse of the individuals and never asks the question about the use of them. And that's really, to me, the bottom line. We should be talking about the use of them in a positive and creative way, saying, should we be using these beings, these sentient beings? But that question really isn't asked. It's basically, there might be a tagline at the end of a video or on a billboard or something of go vegan. But it doesn't really talk about what does that mean to people? Undercover videos, how many times do people need to see these things? They don't ever change. I mean, what people see being investigated this week isn't any different than what the videos of 20 years ago showed. I can understand that they just that these organizations just want to show that it's an ongoing problem, but duh, you know, <laughs> we know that because the system just doesn't change. People are still eating and they're eating more animal products. So the machine doesn't change. So I don't know that the shock and awe is really that constructive because we've been doing it for 30 years and you know, that, that was my perspective, you know, back in the day when I was on the, literally on the other side of the fence from these issues, I viewed the animal movement as something that was never going to get any traction because it had a message that people couldn't embrace because it's just, you know, the, the horror and the repulsiveness of what was offered and the shame and guilt doesn't play well in Peoria. So it was just... You know, I knew that it was never going to be a huge movement because it wasn't something that invited people. It was something to shame people. I understand the point you're making, Harold, but um, Tim brought up the other side of the coin when uh, we interviewed Sharon and Jose from Animal Equality in the sense that you asked Tim, didn't you, that, you know, what, what was the reason for the continuation of open rescues? I think I asked basically the, the very thing that you just said, Harold, which is the filming of this stuff has been going on for a long, long time. Why is it that they continue to do it? I believe their response was is that because people tend to think that those things aren't happening now or that they're not happening in their locality or you know or if it was so bad the government would, would stop it. you know that idea that if something's wrong then they will make it against the law, whoever they happen to be. So I think the the other side of the 
the coin is that it's because it's still going on that they think they have to continue to show it. Say also, I think um, Animal Equality's undercover video, the recent one, was to show the the humane myth that these were supposed to be animals that were being raised humanely, and they wanted to highlight that was a myth. At least that was my understanding. And I think the other thing is that if through these exposés they manage to get media attention, and and the message that's um, put out through the media is that people should be vegan or should try to be vegan, then that's also a good thing. That The more that can be done, the more that message can be got to people, uh, the better. I agree with that, Ronnie. I think the problem arises when that's not the message that's being sent out and when the message that's being sent out is this is an enormous victory and people are given the impression, be it on purpose or not, that cruelty has now been stopped in in this particular abattoir and this particular abattoir was the only place in the country that this was happening which of course is a silly statement to make i think really comes back to the claims making of the Mm. individual advocates and the organizations who put out the videos and i think that was the point that i was making was the difference between the claims that someone like animal equality make and uh, videos like meet your meat who make it very obvious obvious that the footage that they're showing is standard practice in every abattoir in every country in the world. If I had have heard different claims when I watched Meet Your Meat, which was the catalyst to myself becoming vegan, if I had have been told that this footage was taken but it's okay now, you know, we closed that abattoir and this is not happening anymore, I don't think that well, I know that that video would not have had anything like the same effect it did on me. I think I don't have a problem with the undercover footage. I think that it can be very helpful in a lot of ways for a lot of people, but I think it's just enormously important to make make it obvious that this is not a one-off situation, that this happens everywhere, every day, to every other animal that walks into an abattoir. Because, of course, if, if people that take the videos don't, don't say that, don't say that uh, the reasons why people should be vegan and, and don't say that that's kind of standard practice, then we then have to try to say that. We then have to try to get that response into the media by way of letters or whatever. And we may not, although it gives us an opportunity to to do that, we may not always succeed in doing so. Our response may not always be published. No, that's right. Our response may not always be well received by others either. That's kind of the point I'm making. I'm not saying that there isn't any value in these... um, videos, it's just that it shouldn't be the predominant activism tool that we're using, because again, it's part of part of it is being good students of human nature of when we and also call, you know, considering that, like you said, Carolyn, the people uh, or organizations are calling certain things victories. The one thing that astonishes me, just absolutely astonishes me in the quote-unquote animal protection movement is that when they do show these, uh, especially slaughterhouses, they talk, you know, they show animals being stunned and stuff. It's more about the handling of the animal before they're being disassembled, okay? Exactly. And the thing is, is that, you know, it's a point when I bring it up, I get shunned by the movement by and large. But it (laughs) is being that I've done this work 
before. And the thing is, is these animals are only stunned. And to the degree that they're stunned, we can't quantify. But the point is, is they're not dead. And you can't have them dead when you bleed them out. You have to have the heart pumping to pump it out so you don't compromise the quality of the meat. I think if that was part of the message, that when these animals that you think are having a merciful death, you, whether you want to call it humane or not, it doesn't matter. The point is that you are disassembling a con. You're basically, you know, in some cases, you're disassembling a semi-conscious animal. And but the thing is, is that is a point that is glossed over and nobody will talk about. Is that they? You have to have that heart beating. These are not, you know, if people want to think that once they get the captive bolt in the head, or they get their throats cut, or they get like in the case with pigs, they get stunned. That well, that's over with. Now they get bled out and la di da. Well, no, that's not the case. They're still they're still with us because that heart has to be beating. So to bleed them out. I'm really glad that you raised this technical point because. Isn't it true that some people claim that the captive bolt pistol, there's two types. One is to stun and one is to kill. You know, is that your understanding? I, mean, I, I always understood it, uh, that the captive bolt was to stun and that the killing was by bleeding out. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you got this, the stickers in the, in the slaughterhouse, etc. You know, this thing about the captive bolt itself kills... Is that true? Do you know? No, it? It, it, it doesn't. I mean, and the point, it, it would be counterproductive to the meat industry if it did. And that's the point. But on the other hand, you've got, you know, if you use that same instrument on a human, it would kill them. Because how far that bolt projects in, the site, and the density of our skulls, and what the damage it would do, it would, would kill us within seconds. But with a cow, it's different. So it's... Uh, yeah, so is that a lie then? It, it, when they say that some captive bolts are designed to kill, that, that's not true. I would say it's not true. In my opinion, it wouldn't be because you'd be compromising the quality of the meat. And why, why would you do that? It's the same problem I have with Temple Grandin's work. I mean, she says, oh, she developed these shoot systems for beef cattle and dairy cattle that, you know, uh, these serpentine systems and the cows go in there, you know, they can measure stress hormones through blood tests from the beginning to the end of the shoot, and they show that it's, you know, negligible by the time they're in at the end of the shoot. But that's a the point. They only test, do blood tests to the end of the shoot. The fight-or-flight response in the endocrine system only takes a millisecond to kick in. So as soon as they go through the door of the kill floor, the fight-or-flight response kicks in. But the point is, is that they have a little less cortisol in their system than they would otherwise. But as far as making it more humane, they're still terrified, you know, absolutely terrified when they when they go in that door and they see and hear and smell what's going on. I agree with that. And in fact, there's um, a YouTube video called uh, Stimulus Response, I think it's called. And that shows where one pig has urinated in fear and then all the other pigs that come past understand what's going on, you know. But the, the video that Carolyn mentioned, it's kind of like um, almost like a Temple Grandin situation where the the shoot is curved you know so in other words they can't really see where they're going which is you know one of the things that is paraded as some kind of welfare me message from you know the kind of grandin position mm -hmm. and yet you can see that the the other animals are, they're trying to back up they they understand what's going on they 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 know what's going on 
So they're trying to go backwards, and that's why they're using the electric prods to force them forward, even though they're in a curved situation. We're just fooling ourselves that these non-humans are, are dumb, you know, the way that people want to think that they are. I absolutely agree with that. And the way I put, I describe that kind of work is that we're just playing a horribly cruel trick on these individuals for the sake of speeding up slaughter lines and improving the quality of the meat. It's just a terrible trick we're playing on them. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, although the um, analogy is controversial, I would say that um, it, it's similar to suggesting in Auschwitz that, you know, you're just going for a shower. You know, the, the idea that you're trying to fool the individuals into something. But I think event, eventually, as it were, the penny drops. Sure it sure does, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a good analogy. I don't disagree with it because not only did they 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 told these these uh, people that, oh, hang your clothes up on this peg and remember the number over your peg so you can pick up your clothes afterwards. But they also played classical music for them. And, you know, it was to create this whole illusion that everything's going to be fine and it's just basically, a, you know, a hygiene thing that they're going through. And it was the opposite. To me, that's just what we do to these animals. We just create a a situation where we lull them into a false sense of security only for them to realize once they go into the chamber and whether you want to call it, you know, in some cases they do use gas now, you know, what they call closed confinement systems, gassing systems or a kill floor. As soon as they're in that room, they understand what's going on. Harold, could you tell us more about your ideas, uh, re-sustainable independent family farms. Given the huge harm done to other animals by mechanized agriculture, would you agree that food should be grown and harvested by hand, with most members of society being involved in doing this? Uh, yes, I do. I think you're uh, spot on with that. I see absolutely nothing wrong with decentralizing. And I, I, see, it, <laughs> I see it as an absolute necessity that we decentralize our food production, uh, particularly here in the United States. And it's just to put that into perspective. Um, and if you look at the uh, USDA's agricultural census, in 1950, approximately 50% of the people in the United States produced food. And as of our last census, which was 2009, it was less than 1%. It was 0.8% of the population produces food. And this is just an example of the corporate consolidation of food production. And we, but the thing is, is we're in, in that frame, we have lost the democracy of our food, basically globally. When you see agribusinesses like uh, Bayer and um, Syngenta and uh, Monsanto and so on doing the nefarious things they're doing to control the world's food supply, on the other hand, here in the United States, in most industrialized countries, you see urban farming, you see urban gardens, you see uh, a lot of uh, particularly young people who are reconnecting to land and starting up organic farms and uh, CSAs, which here in the United States, CSA stands for uh, Community Supported Agriculture. They're huge in this area. And it's basically putting people back to work on the land. I mean, they have full-time job professors, laborers, whatever. But they can spend several hours a week getting their hands dirty and planting, weeding, and harvesting food. So it's a, uh, it's really kind of um, 
a turning point in food production, and it's a very exciting time. We do need, and people want to, get reconnected to their food. Yeah, our local um, vegan group, we're, we're hoping to embark on something like that, people um, growing food veganically, and hoping that will involve other people, just, you know, even more people than, you know, we, we have involved at the moment, you know, doing the things we, we do already. And hopefully that's that's something that can take off and, and spread. And it's something that other groups could, could do in other parts of the country as well. Mm-hmm. Well, there's actually an organization, an international organization called WOOF, which the acronym changed recently, but it, it once meant Worldwide Organic Farming. And uh, there are organic farmers all over the world on every continent. And people go and intern at these places. And you can go to any continent and see different types of farming practices and so on to learn. And most people do this for different reasons. They do it for everything to be more efficient in growing, maximizing the production of their backyard as far as food production, or that they plan on going into farming themselves, or that they're farmers and they just want to learn other modalities. Uh, I'm a big um, proponent of the what's called the stock-free organic techniques which uh, the only book that's available on that is called Growing Green. It's from England. Uh, Ian Tolhurst and Jenny Hall are the authors. It's veganic agriculture, and it's proving to be the most productive of all the organic techniques, but it's also the answer to many, many of the problems that we're seeing, uh, both from health to use of natural resources. Yeah, we, have a, we have something called the Vegan Organic Network over here. And uh, because a lot of people have these box schemes and we do ourselves, we, we, we get organic vegetables delivered. But of course, they're, they're, in most parts of the country, they're not veganic. They're still grown using, you know, animal manure and that kind of thing. In some areas, they're, they've actually started to have uh, these schemes where the food is actually produced veganically. But it's mm-hmm. very small. It would be great if that, that were to expand, you know, so so as many people as possible could have access to veganically grown food. Here in North America, it's getting to be uh, something that people are paying attention to, again, because of the crisis that we're seeing with organic foods. Uh, some of the big growers of organic vegetables in California uh, have had problems with E. coli contamination, either from groundwater or from the free manure they get from feedlots and dairies. And uh, the Rodale Institute, which is the largest organic research facility in the United States has shown for years that whatever's in that manure, plants take it up, whether it's pharmaceuticals, uh, the prions from mad cow disease, they can be taken up by plants, or anything else that you might, you know, the pathogens that you find in uh, animal manure, or the bone meal, or the blood meal, which is all acceptable in organic farming. Uh, those things all can show up in your vegetables, and we've, but in particular, we've seen uh, E. coli, some salmonella, but the, the, the thing that just outraged me for years was that they blamed the spinach, they blamed the lettuce, they blamed the product itself for making you sick, and they never, the news media never paid any attention to that these are zoonotic diseases. There's something that happens in animals, not plants, and it's only been the last couple of years that they're actually saying, oh, the source of it was actually from, you know, contaminated uh, aquifer or from the manure that was being used on the plants, on, on the soil. So 
yeah, it's people are waking up. It's 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 been kind of a long road, but it's starting to get into public consciousness that um, using animal byproducts for uh, soil amendments is not a good idea. Harold, has it been your experience that most people just don't have adequate information about the way animals are exploited and how various forms of exploitation are linked? Or do you think that most people just don't believe that animals are truly thinking, feeling beings much as themselves? Well, I think part of it is that now that we basically have a, at least a full generation of people who their only connection to animals is through their companion animals, whether cats or dogs, that's the only way they can perceive other animals. And when they're confronted with information that farm animals are smarter than cats and dogs and by and large or you know i shouldn't say smarter but have capabilities beyond that it's disturbing to them and there's something i learned about recently it's a, it's a psychological mechanism that people have whenever they're confronted with anything that they consider that's outside their comfort zone and it's called wishful fearful thinking and the wishful fearful thinking works like this it's like when you hear this information for the first time, you at first say, I wish that wasn't so, because you're just taking it in and you're considering it, but you wish it wasn't so. And then when it, if it makes sense, then you become afraid that it is so. And then what happens in the human psyche is there's a switch that flips and it just people flip right over into denial, which entrenches them such that they are basically, you can't reach them. There's been psychological research done this on people that are confronted with conspiracy theories and so on and so forth. Um, while they logically might make sense, and there's good information there, they wish it wasn't so, but there's enough information and there's enough facts that they go, wow, well, I'm afraid that is so, but I can't live with that. So they go into denial. And... Um, you know, that's, I think, how a lot of people cope with that. That conversation that we have with people is that it is about exploitation and that it's where we need to bring in all of the different aspects of how that mindset works. That, you know, to me, it is not a mistake or a coincidence that we call everything that we use, resources, whether it's a natural world or non-human animals, because we use the same word with each other. I mean, who hasn't worked for a business that doesn't have a human resources department? We're all resources to something, and what is that something? You know, some people would argue that it's, you know, this uh, a uh, financially driven machine, a uh, consumer machine that... Um, exploits everything it touches. I think that's partly true, but I also think it's part of the psychology of agriculture in that for 10, eight to 10,000 years, once we domesticated animals and plants, we developed this idea of resources and that they were things to be used and used up and to be managed and to be controlled. And I think if once we talk about that and to me, this is a very exciting time in history in that here in the United States and all over the world, the Occupy movement is talking about that. 
And the fifth bullet point in the declaration from Occupy Wall Street talks about that specifically, that non-human animals are part of this entanglement of exploitation and that they are, you know, while I may be a wage slave to corporate America, they're slaves in a different way to a consuming human population. So they get it. The Occupy movement gets that, that it's what, uh, I'm heavily paraphrasing what Martin Luther King said, but, you know, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And I think they understand that and that this psychology of, of exploitation is something that can, we can make the interconnections for people to understand. And when people feel that they're the victim of something uh, or someone, you can say, well, you know, you are, and do you see I, that we all are, but that basically the whole biota is. And when we make that case, I think it's something people can listen to these days. Uh, we have the energy of the Occupy movement and people who aren't even vegetarian. I mean, you have brilliant minds like Chris Hedges and so on that are talking about these things and making these connections. So I think it's a great time to have that discussion and to say that, you know, that the exploitation, here's an example. And do you see how this interconnects with the use of these non-human animals? Can you see how that is connected to the use of you, the use of others, the use of systems and structures? We have a local animal rights activist that's helping us uh, veganize the, the local Dallas Occupy movement. And uh, we're going in, our, our local animal rights group's going in later this month to bring vegan food and outreach literature and, and a film to try to get them to connect the dots between various forms of exploitation. It's really heartening. Yes, and that's also something people really have never caught on to with Food Not Bombs. I mean, that's been their mission from the beginning. <laughs> Food Not Bombs has understood that for years. You know, that's been their outreach is to go into these areas of conflict and try to bring, you know, that message of uh, the, the entanglements of exploitation. What do you think, with the state of veganic farming now, what do you see as the as as the timeline for a system of veganic farming to ramp up to where it could satisfy the demands of the world? I would say 10 years. And again, being that humans are crisis management oriented, that what's going to push them into that is the depletion of fresh water. Uh, globally, we are running out of fresh water. Some other countries are desalinating water to have any fresh water. And desalination is not a, an option and because for every gallon of fresh water, you get, you get a, a full gallon of waste from the reverse osmosis process that when it's dumped back in the ocean, kills everything it touches. In my opinion, it's going to be fresh water that is going to push these veganics agriculture forward because it uses so much less water than permaculture or other systems. On top of that, I would add that here in North America, I'm working with some people in Montreal that we're trying to set up a, uh, well, we are setting up a uh, certification system for uh, organic agriculture. 
So it'll be something, it'll be apart from organic, like the USD organic standards. It'll be apart from that. It'll be a standalone that will be for uh, veganics only. Gotcha. Harold, could you please tell us a little bit about FarmKind? When you founded it, what the goals that you had were and who did you hope would benefit most from the material and the advice that would be available to them? Well, I started FarmKind, golly, what, four, four years ago now? My nonprofit status didn't come through for quite a while. The Bush administration was kind of hostile to new nonprofits. So it wasn't until President Obama came into office that I finally got my nonprofit. Whether those two things are connected, I don't know. But in any case, what it's about, my aim with the organization is that it's just me. Uh, it's not a large organization, nor do I have any aspirations for turning it into some big nonprofit. I basically go out and I speak to any group that's willing to have me talk about a wide range of issues. And like we have this evening is to interconnect these issues to show how they all uh, are connected. That veganism is really the answer. It's an all-inclusive way of dealing with the problems of the, of the planet and of society. And it's also an outreach for farmers who want to transition from animal agriculture into plant-based agriculture. It's interesting that Roger's here because I just got contacted last week by a farmer in Ireland who wants to get out of the sheep business. And then I got uh, one today from a farmer in Scotland who is has sheep, but you can't get subsidized for any kind of, uh, for anything unless you have livestock on the land, which I wasn't aware of. I need to educate myself about uh, agricultural laws and subsidy systems of uh, the UK. But in any case, it's interesting to see the, the people that contact me too. And then also I get uh, approached by people who uh, want to start up farming. And I tell them, well, plant-based is the way to go. And then I have a toolkit for them to uh, how to get started, where they can find grant money and funding and uh, give them different models that they could work with uh, to kind of draw my experience. And some of the new things that are out there that people can uh, tap into uh, so it isn't quite the burden that it would be otherwise. And also to show that if we want a more peaceful world, we have to try to produce our food in the most peaceful way possible. I mean, there is no way to produce food totally without harm, but I think our obligation, our moral responsibility is to do it to the best of our ability with the least amount of harm. So that's why I'm a proponent of veganics and, uh, and getting people away from animal-based agriculture and even organics, you know, standard organics, to look at that and uh, because that's getting undermined left and right here in the United States. So it's getting to the point where USDA organic doesn't really mean anything anymore. Yeah, that sounds wonderful, Harold. Thank you for all of that that you're doing. Um, Harold, you said in a um, video interview, I think, that at the age of 31, you had no experience of what a vegetarian was and that you were surprised by seeing someone had a bumper sticker which said I don't eat my friends and you thought that might be something to do with cannibalism it seems yeah. <laughs> is, is all that true 
Yes, it is. I was working as a mechanic. I moved to uh, Cleveland when I left the farm, and I was working as a mechanic. And the first car I worked on had that bumper sticker. And uh, it just didn't make any sense to me, and I just had to ask what it meant. And the young woman who owned the car said, well, I'm a vegetarian. I hadn't heard that word before, so... I know this, and this is set for four years of going to college and doing a bit of living, at least I thought, but I hadn't heard that word before. So uh, she told me what it was about and where she bought her food, and and uh, it really was kind of a snowball going down a hill at that point because then I went to a food co-op. I hooked up with a local vegetarian group, and that group was really instrumental in where I'm at today because they weren't just a vegetarian group. They were part of a a larger organization that was started by John Denver back in the 1980s called the Windstar Foundation. And part of what they did, because it was a, a environmental group, but they also were vegans and they also did coursework in something called uh, attitudinal healing, which was a coursework developed by a couple of psychologists in California named the Jumpolskis. And it really what it was is that there was an environment they created a safe space for me to deconstruct my indoctrination. And uh, I'll tell you, I haven't run across a vegetarian group like that where they work on doing the inner work as much as just being a social club to share recipes and kind of develop community and commiserate about the trials and tribulations of being vegan. But with them, it was it, it went much deeper than that. And through that deconstruction is how I was able to deal with a lot of my past baggage and to, uh, you know, and to start me on the path of understanding. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? We uh, recently interviewed uh, Katrina Fox and she was saying, I think in the late 80s, even early 90s, she'd never heard the word vegan. So in some senses, that kind of emphasizes the value of veganism being the, the buzzword now, the moral baseline of the movement. And so you know, consequently, going back to what even Carolyn was saying about the claims making about these open rescues, if we can frame our claims making in terms of veganism, that seems to be, you know, a very positive thing. Oh, absolutely. And and in particularly with open rescues, because with an open rescue, you have a face to put with and a transformational story of an individual to put along with it. It isn't that that's the one thing I like about open rescue is that you can do a video showing the the horrific conditions that these individuals are in. Well, then if you follow that and then see them when they're whole and healthy again, that is powerful to people because they say, well, this is, you know, you considered this food, and no, you know, this is a uh, individual with their own interests, and they were deprived of that in one setting and. And to the best of our ability and understanding, uh, as humans, we try to provide, you know, something that is akin to what they would thrive in. And I think that that story, telling that whole story, is very powerful for people. About uh, the big picture thing, you you were talking about industrial capitalism. You're talking about the drive for profits. Uh, you were talking about how the taught version of animal welfare is part and parcel of all that. And you talked about the d difference between welfare and rights in a quite a no novel way, I thought. 
you talked about welfare being rather like running a uh, hospice and you talked about rights as a version of uh, midwifery that in the sense of bringing into being you know a new thing giving birth if you like to a new idea which will transform the paradigm i wonder if that's the way that you still conceive of the of the issues and you also talked about intersectionality the idea that animal rights environmentalism social justice veganism they're not separate issues at all they're the same issue and so in that sense you know some people talk about intersectionality some people talk about alliance politics you know you were saying that all these things need to kind of come together have you had any kind of success in talking to environmentalists or other people involved with social justice campaigning because you know i know a lot of people who say that well you know we're all for these ideas of connecting with other people but they don't seem to go go where we want to, them to go quite honestly people get it but it depends on what they've invested themselves into i have found that people that have invested themselves into large organizations like say a, they're tied into a large environmental organization like a national or international organization their understanding of issues is in that large corporate sense and because of that it's extremely hard for them to make a more true connection to what's important because of the, because they've just come to a place being that they've invested so much time and energy and their understanding of how the world works is through these large organizations that it's all about compromise so to them they're extremely comfortable with making compromises for a long-term goal but the only problem you know as far as i'm concerned with compromises is that when you do you limit your choices only to what seems possible or reasonable and you disconnect yourself from what you truly want and all you have left is the is the compromise and as far as i'm concerned the human spirit won't invest itself in a compromise i think that we have to keep that vision and that that mission that larger mission alive and realize that and disconnect from that kind of corporate think and say you know this this will happen but it won't happen from the top down because that's how that paradigm works they're going to legislate morality they're going to legislate whatever but you see organizations like in the environmental organization uh, organizations here in the United States once they disconnected from their grassroots and became national organizations and international organizations they felt that they could do more good by sitting at the table with the power holders and creating change there but in the long run what ended up happening is that they found out that they didn't have the means to affect any change at all so all they do is create say that they're having victories by sitting at the table during negotiations of say carbon credits which is basically just moving the you know the proverbial chairs around the deck of the titanic so it's uh, and i think we see this in the animal movement too i mean we have organizations that support actually have no problem with the use and consumption of of uh, farm animals or the breeding of animals but yet people are invested in those organizations saying you know well they're animal organizations they're animal lovers and so on and so forth when actually they're not and uh, 
so we we make that compromise thinking that through political power through lobbying uh, through PACs we're going to create the change that non-humans deserve but again you know we need to take I think we need to take a closer look at that because in other in other movements in the past that hasn't worked and they end up become corrupted corrupted by their their need to keep the corporate entity viable and that's why I argue that the way my thinking changed on this is is that animal rights is a social justice cause that's what cause social justice causes are built around is the injustice of one group toward another and in this case it's not hard to make that case and people you know there's enough information out in the general public because they understand that they get that so it's just you know generally reminding them that you know you don't need to compromise you know your soul for the sake of sticking up for what you believe in i've got a friend who lives in cattle country and uh I always wanted to make a t-shirt out of something he said once in a post he made about a particular issue concerning uh, international cattle trade and the animal organizations that were behind and promoting this international animal trade in beef. And uh, he said, I'll quote him, never trust a reform movement to people who are in a state of apathy about the ability of humans to change. I think it's brilliant because that's basically when you look at a lot of organizations, that's how they approach this. They're in a state of apathy uh, over the ability of people, the ability of people to change. Therefore, we'll make these compromises because we just we know people can't change. They can't, you know. And for me, I just absolutely don't believe that because I look at my own life. It, and if I can do it, anybody can do it. Yeah, well, I guess that goes back to what Tim was suggesting, wasn't it, about, you know, how many in a sense. And, you know, in terms of um, the interaction that uh, Carolyn has had with the people, you know, talking about the Australian example that she was giving, people were saying, well, you know, people are never going to go vegan and we've just got to do, you know, whatever we can. And that takes me back to something you said right at the beginning of the interview, Harold, which you were saying about um, the Western herding culture i'm wondering whether you know you feel that in some senses this kind of herding culture is part and parcel of our dna that makes transcending all that a major problem i absolutely do not believe that humans are hardwired for exploitation of animals uh if that was so that we wouldn't have so many hindus and buddhists in the world um even though not all of them are in the 20th century let alone the 21st century are doing a very good job of following their precept. But the point is, is that it's not something that's innate to human nature. And the way I put it, like when I talk at a land grant or an agricultural college, is that, and, and everybody agrees with me, is that every person can tell you what they think about animals, but not many people can tell you what they feel about animals, what they truly feel. And that is our work. That is getting people to connect with their hearts, very much like, you know, the teachings of Buddha or, or Mahavira or in the Jain tradition, to say what speaks to our better nature, what speaks to, and again, I guess it comes back to the golden rule, and what speaks to our better selves. And if we can honestly ask that question and help people ask themselves that question honestly, 
I think that is when society starts to change and when people start to change and that we are uh, asking, I guess, the question that uh, Krishnamurti once said, and when he said it's no sign of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society, uh, that's where we're at. We're well-adjusted, very well-adjusted to a sick society, but not the whole world was invested. It's basically the Abrahamic traditions are the ones who invested in the herding culture. And we, at this point, ask the question, is that the healthy way of being in the world? Or, at this point in history, is it the way we're going to be able to survive on this planet? How much longer can we go? As my friend Howard Lyman is saying, you know, people say, well, we can take, you know, small steps here and there, you know, and ask people to give up meat once a week and so on. He argues we don't have time for that. The you know, things are just going south so fast with our environment and with the planet and with our water and so on and so forth. We don't have time to, you know, say that we don't do, no one makes a change in one fell swoop. But when we put the urgency, you know, state the urgency in a truthful way, saying, you know, this is where we're at. You know, this is where our atmosphere is at. Here's where our soil is at, which is at the bottom of the oceans mostly. And here's where our fresh water supplies are at. Do we have time to debate this and say, well, we'll do one thing here and make this compromise. The situation is too dire and we need to be more urgent. I think you tapped into that with your thoughts about this concept that you raised about agricultural apartheid. Could you expand on those thoughts for us? Agricultural apartheid is really very simply the idea that agriculture exploits everything it touches. It exploits nature, it exploits people, it exploits animals, you know, it exploits markets. Like right now, they, it's one of the victories that some organizations are calling is saying that meat consumption in the United States is going down. Well, it's gone down like less, well, a little over 1%, and they're heralding that as a victory. But when you look at the Agricultural Market Services website, our exports have gone up. So actually meat production has gone up. Consumption's gone down a little bit, but we're still producing. And it's because of globalization. We've got, you know, the big three producers of beef in, in, in the world are Canada, United States, and Brazil. And we're globalizing animal agriculture at an exponential rate. And that has to stop. There's a lot of good people doing a lot of good work in that area. But again, it, it comes down to this idea that We've got to recognize that we have corrupt systems and, again, and structures, which is what the Occupy movement is really bringing forward, that we have structures in place, power structures in place, that are extremely corrupt and are not healthy for anyone or anything, and that it's a time that we need to, you know, to dissect these things, look at them, look at their history, look how they came to be, and who's running them. And are they necessary anymore? Uh, and, and to either restructure them or just flat out get rid of them because they don't serve us anymore or serve the planet or serve, uh, or, or literally just ask the question, what would it take in this world to create a culture, to create a world where everything thrives, where everything thrives? What does that look like? And that's a question people are starting to ask. That's, and, and I think that's a healthy thing. It's a direction we need to go in. I wonder if that taps into uh, another thing that you said, that we are kind of what we eat. 
in the sense that consuming other animals, we are consuming their fear and their pain and their anger. What effect do you think it has on people consuming this kind of systematic violence? It seems seem to be a very kind of detrimental thing, doesn't it? Well, it does, and there's thousands of years of evidence to support this. I mean, one of the basic tenets of Buddhism or, or Hinduism or Jainism, it's or Taoism. It's and and the thing, but the problem is, is, it's an experiential thing, and that's why I challenge people. I mean, I I can relate my story, tell my story, and say how the transformation has made me to be a much more peaceful person, and the inner peace that I experience now, but. That means nothing to them other than it's a nice story. And I invite them to give it a whirl. It's like anything in this world. It's, it's one of the probably profound, most profound things that Buddha ever said was that the only thing that you know is a, for certain to be a truth in your life are the things you've directly experienced. So I challenge people to say, then if you haven't experienced a plant-based diet, if you haven't experienced being kind to others, then how do you know it doesn't work? And what have you got to lose to give it a whirl? You can't be a naysayer. You can't say it won't work unless you've tried. So give it a try. You have nothing to lose. You know, a lot of people, they, they just kind of cock their head and, you know, nod and say, yeah, what do I have to lose? It can't hurt me. And the thing is, is that with the things that they have been told, all the preconceptions about veganism and so on, is just uh, propaganda. They realize at that point that a lot of what they've been told, propaganda, whether it's from peers or from the industry. But you know, at that point, it puts them in a different place to consider that. And the college kids are the best to work with this with because they, uh, they're they at a point in their lives where rebellion is a bit of what they do, but they are exploring life. And they are willing to try to experience new things. I just wonder whether you can kind of say something about if, if people go vegetarian and vegan for health reasons, and then they become exposed to the kind of ethical arguments, whether that kind of develops within them. Uh, you know, is, is that the kind of thing that happened to you? Do you think that you explored vegetarianism and then veganism in terms of your own health and then became aware of the ethics? Is, is, is that right? Is that is that a kind of accurate version of your story? Yeah, I would say so. It was for me. It was, and it wasn't that long. It was probably a year or maybe a year and a half after I was on a completely plant-based diet that there was something, I dare say, spiritual happening within me, a shift, a change, whatever it might be. But I found out later that that wasn't that unusual. I mean, this is common among uh, people like, well, even Western religious aesthetics, you know, that's part of their discipline, whether they're Franciscans or Benedictines who don't eat any animal products at their highest level of aesthetic uh, because they do that to have a more pure relationship with God. But then you look at Hinduism and, um, and Buddhism and so on, or even in macrobiotics. In microbiotics, they talk about this, that it's uh, it will create a shift within you. Once you start clearing up at a cellular level, when you start clearing your body out and shedding the... Uh, all that old stuff, whether it's the fear, the, you know, all those endocrine chemicals, that adrenaline and cortisone and everything you were eating from the animals, when that stuff starts clearing out, you start to get, as they put it, more clear-headed. I think there's a lot of truth to that because that was my experience. 
Okay, Harold, I'd like to thank you very sincerely for spending your time with us today. I've found speaking with you to be very inspiring and very interesting and incredibly positive. So I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to learn so much from you today. Um, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Yes, thank, thank you, Harold. Thank, thank you, Harold. Thanks, Harold. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.